I was in a seminary and they did a class and they said, okay, I want everybody to tell what your favorite gospel is, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and then we're gonna tell you something about you if that's your favorite gospel. And so we told it and, and I ended up saying, well, I like Mark. And the guy said, yep, you're crazy. I said, oh, thanks, man, that's a, that's a weird personality test. Uh, but he explained, he said, Mark's gospel is full of immediacy, it's very fast-paced, it's very boom, 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 this is who Jesus was, this is what Jesus did, now believe in him as the Son of God and your Savior. It's quick, fast, to the point, he says, so usually people that are very action-oriented, people that are very change-oriented, people that are very, uh, they want things, results, and they want it now, like Mark's gospel. Many who are more like the just very spiritual, very like thinking outside of, of just normal like logic, things like that, love John's gospel. John is very um, spiritual in the way he writes his gospel, and so it's a, a little bit different. But we're gonna dive into Mark, and one of the things that I love is 16 chapters, it's the shortest of the gospel accounts, and it is marked by the word immediately. Immediately. There's a fast paced, this is who Jesus is, this is why we should believe in him. Let's pray and dive into the Word of God. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to study your Word. We pray, God, that you would make it come alive. Lord, I ask that for me or anyone else that just has distracting thoughts, things we're thinking about the day or the week that's, helping, that's hindering us from studying your Word, Lord, just help us to remove those things and to dive in and enjoy uh, just this, this time we get to spend in your presence and, and in your Word. Thank you that your Word does not return void. God, I thank you that even if my sermon were terrible tonight, which I hope it's not, but Lord, even if it were, uh, we can read your word, Mark 1 through 5, and, and just by the reading of your word, because it's living and active, uh, we can be blessed and we can grow. And just thank you for that truth, Lord. And we just pray that this time would be honoring and glorifying to you. Help me, Lord, to preach your word and to, to be faithful and true to who you are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Mark chapter 1, I want to dive into this gospel. Read it with me. Mark chapter 1, verse number 1 begins this way. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark, we believe, was the earliest account where someone sat down and they said, we're going to write out Jesus' life. We're going to write out who he was. We're going to write out what he did. It's around 65 AD, and, and picture it, the Christians are literally under persecution. It's a newly formed church, and many of them are having to kind of hide their faith. And as they're hiding, they're reading these words, and for the Jewish people especially, they're reading about the gospel, which simply means good news, the good news of Jesus. And they're hearing two things about Jesus, that Jesus is the Christ, and that Jesus is the Son of God. Christ means Savior or Messiah, so that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior, and Christ Jesus is the Son of God. And so Mark is, this is the only statement where he gives one of his opinions, and then it, he kind of goes into narrative, and he says, this is what I'm about to tell you about. The good news of Jesus, who is the Savior, and he is the Son of God. And Mark just dives right in. The guy writing this book, his name was John Mark. He was a contemporary of Paul. He was not an apostle himself. If you read the book of Acts, you'll read about how Mark, uh, they would call him Mark, was traveling with Paul and Barnabas on his missionary journeys. And at some point, they get to a, a step in the road where Mark doesn't want to go. And Paul decides, well, he's too weak to journey with us. We're going to send him on his way. And Barnabas and Paul actually get in an argument over John Mark, the same guy who writes this gospel. 
And so they part ways, Paul and Barnabas, and Mark goes with Barnabas, and we know through Paul's letters that later Mark would find, be found redeemed by the Apostle Paul, and they would reacquaint themselves, and Mark would actually be a trusted minister uh, and partner with the Apostle Paul. So that's the guy that's writing this book, and we believe, early church tradition tells us, that Mark is writing his gospel account based on the eyewitness of the Apostle Peter. So Peter is basically uh, putting his stamp of approval on Mark's account of who Jesus was, what Jesus did, and why Jesus came. So that is the gospel narrative that we dive into together, written around 65 AD by a guy named John Mark, based on the eyewitness of Peter. Don't worry, I'm going to remind you guys of this a few times as we go through this book. And the way it's split up is there's eight chapters. Mark 1 through Mark 8 is about Jesus' ministry close to home in Galilee. Mark chapter 8b through 10, chapter 10, is Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. Why was he on his way to Jerusalem? That was where he would be crucified. So the middle of the book is his on his way journey. And the final chapters, verses 11 through 16, is Jesus arriving in Jerusalem and the ministry and events that would take place in Jerusalem. So my encouragement to you as we dive into this sermon, as we dive into this word, is to go home, Mark is the shortest of the gospel accounts, and read through this book for yourself over and over again. It's 16 chapters, Mark's gospel. It can be read in a day, uh, but I'm, uh, hey, take a whole week and just spend time in this gospel account. One of the special things that I'll stop nerding out about the book itself is also that Mark is one of the three synoptic gospels. What that means is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, if you were to read them next to each other, you will see that they share a great deal of what is being written. What we believe is that Mark, what we're studying now, was the first gospel account that was written, and Matthew and Luke would use Mark's account and add in what they felt was pertinent or important to their own narrative. There's a great book that explains four portraits, one gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If I were to paint a picture or you were to paint a picture of me, some of you might think I'm fairly good looking. Others might think I'm hideous. And so all of your portraits, although they'd be of one person, they would look very different. This is how we can understand Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They are different gospel narratives, four portraits of one Jesus. So let us dive in to the gospel of Mark. Verse number two, read it with me. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. We're going to stop right there and we're going to begin to dive into this Mark's beginning and why he does it this way. He says, listen, there was a man whose name was John. And before I get to Jesus, I need you to hear about John. John prepared the way of the Lord. John came to make his path straight. 
John's gospel says there's this guy, John the Baptist, and he was not the Messiah, but he came to bear witness of the Messiah. He was coming to make the way prepared for the Lord. John the Baptist prepares the way of the kingdom of God. Now, I want you to hear this tonight. There's this crazy man out in the wilderness wearing camel hair and eating locusts and honey. And he has one job in life, literally one job. His job is to prepare for God's coming. So he's in the wilderness and we see that there's this Jewish audience. I need you to understand who this guy is preaching to. He's preaching primarily to the people of Israel and the people of Israel have gone 400 years without hearing from the Lord. 400 years of silence where no prophet spoke, where no one was speaking on behalf of God. And for the people of Israel, understand this would have been unusual and it would have been miserable and it would have been tense for them. And for all 400 of those years, they are waiting on the coming of a Messiah, a Savior who would redeem the people of Israel, God's chosen people, who would restore their nation to its former glory and bring them back into hearing from God. So it's a massively big deal that Mark begins. He says, listen, all of a sudden, after 400 years of silence, there's this crazy nut in the wilderness wearing camel hair and eating locusts. And he all of a sudden, silence has been for 400 years. There is a break in the silence. John the Baptist comes and he begins to prophesy and speak. Thus says the Lord. And he has come to announce the Messiah is coming. Church, I want you to see tonight that he is this guy. The setting is not the synagogue. The setting is not the church. The setting is not a program in the church. The setting is John when he's coming to prepare the way of the Lord. John doesn't go into the synagogue. He goes into the wilderness and begins to preach, uh, not trying to accommodate or acquaint himself with the people around him. He could not be more different than the people around him. This is the setting where he makes the way for the Lord to come. He's preparing the way of the Lord. When people come to my house, my house, and any of you that have been in it, um, any of you that haven't been in it, I'm probably about to tell you the reason why. If you've been in it, you can attest to the fact that our house is a wreck. And we're never there. And that's usually my excuse is like, well, you know, we work a lot. We're just never home. Uh, and, and then I realize, like, in reality, we could be home every day. The house would not be any better. It might be worse. And so anytime you're coming to visit, like I want to give you like a behind the scenes picture of what it looks like when we're preparing the house for your visit. I am running around throwing shoes everywhere. At least 20,000 things are going into the coat closet, whether it's a coat or not, it's going to get shoved in there. I'm throwing Ruru's toys, some of them in his room and some of them in the trash, hoping he doesn't notice. I'm picking up all of the, the clothes that I laid right next to the clothes hamper and I'm trying to put them not in the clothes hamper, somewhere they won't be seen. When guests are coming to my house, like there's just this hectic chaos of like, I got to prepare for whoever is coming. This thing has been happening lately. And uh, if my in-laws ever watch this, I, I love y'all so much, uh, but they'll stop at the house kind of unexpected, like unannounced. And uh, they miss Ruru, I guess. I know it's not me and Jordan, but they're coming to see Ruru and they'll come in and kind of like, they'll knock a couple times, but like they're my family. So if you're family, what do you do? You just walk in the house. So if y'all come to my house, look, I'm just telling you, it's a mess. Not twice walk in. Right? Don't wait for us to say, come in. Like, odds are, um, I'm in the prayer room. Jordan's watching TV on the couch. Like, just, just come in. But my in-laws will come in, and I've not prepared the way for their coming. 
And so what begins to happen is my in-laws come in the door and I'm like in overdrive, foom, 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 hoping they're not noticing, oh, here's this belt, here's these shoes, I gotta get this over here. Skateboard's on the floor, I was skating in the house again, I'll kick that against the wall, things are going everywhere. Like you gotta prepare the way of someone coming into your house. This is John the Baptist's job. The Messiah is coming on the scene and God literally sends. If you read Luke's gospel, it, it tells about John the Baptist's birth. Literally, like, this is not a kid. Uh, God is not, like, caught unaware of his in-laws coming into the house. God is well prepared to send a messenger ahead to announce the coming of the Messiah. Mark begins by saying, look, the prophets wrote about this guy. Luke's gospel says, Zechariah, the baby in the womb of his mother, Elizabeth, being John the Baptist, saw Jesus in Mary's womb and leapt for joy. John the Baptist was created for this purpose, to make the way for God to come, to prepare the way for the Messiah. So whatever this guy does, you can know he's not me throwing stuff haphazardly into the closet. He is intentional. He is doing exactly what God intended him to do, to prepare the way for the Messiah. So we can read this and know, like, whatever we are reading, this is God at work in this crazy nut job in the wilderness eating locusts and honey and wearing a camel. I, I looked for a camel suit on Amazon, by the way. Uh, I could not find any camel clothing because I was thinking, you know, this would be cool coming here tonight with a camel loincloth, right? And all of you are like, praise the Lord. Amazon did not have that. So John the Baptist is saying, hey, listen, I need to let y'all know the Messiah is coming. The kingdom of God is at hand. And I want to be honest with you. As I read this this week, I asked, okay, if we, the church of today, were given the task, hey, guys, guess what? Jesus is coming back. He is, right? Amen? Do you know that? Jesus is coming back. What if God said today to our church, what if he said, hey, church, I want you to prepare the way for the return of Jesus, right? What do you think the church today would be doing? Because technically, that's what we are doing. Amen? Amen. We've been given this message. Hey, your Savior is coming back. Now prepare the way for the reign of the Savior. And yet, what do we do? I ask myself, if we were John the Baptist, what would we be doing? I can tell you what we'd be doing. We'd be trying to make our music a little better. We'd be coming up with new programs in our church. Well, how good's our youth ministry? Is our children's ministry on point? How are the lights in the church? Is our giving good? Is our attendance good? How can we increase our attendance? How can we increase our giving? How can we make our space bigger? How can we make our building more beautiful? How can we do programs that reach the homeless? How can we do programs that reach the, the needy? How can we do programs that bring in the teen moms? How can we redo the programs that'll fix addiction? How can we do the programs that'll fix violence and in the homes? Uh, we be coming up with all kinds of programs to say, all right, let's get ready for Jesus' return. How do I know? Because that's what we do. That's what we do. I'm not knocking them. There's a place for us creating ways to do the ministry that God has called us to do. But I want you to look at what John the Baptist does. His one job is to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. And here's what he does. Verse number four. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
John says the Messiah is coming. How do we prepare? And how John prepared was he went out into the wilderness. He had crowds of people coming to them. And John realized what is still true today. If I want them to understand the Messiah, if I want them to understand the Messiah that is coming and what he's come for, who he has come for, what he has come to do, the beginning is to let these people know that they need him. Hear me out on this. Y'all, step number one for receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ is knowing that you need the gospel of Jesus Christ. I can't count the amount of programs and ministries I've watched in churches that they are feeding people and they're clothing people. Wonderful, wonderful things. They're having programs for the young people to have fun. But listen, if those people come into our doors and they do not leave knowing, I need Jesus, guess what? You just sent them out fed and clothed and entertained, but dying, dying, lost, broken, unfulfilled, unsatisfied. Their bellies are going to rumble the next day. Their clothes are going to tear. Their minds are going to become bored again. And if we didn't offer the fact, listen, I love you. I want you to be clothed. I want you to be fed, but I need you to know that there is something missing that is only met by the Messiah. I need you to turn away from everything else the world is offering you. Those things are not going to satisfy you. I need you to turn away from your sin. I need you to turn away from the things that have entertained you. And I need you to turn to the only source of life that will ever exist. That's John the Baptist's message. You see, there's this idea in farming. I don't know a lot about it. Here's the extent of my knowledge. I make a garden every year. I'm really good at growing stuff, and I'm really bad at harvesting it. So, like, be my guest. If, if you see my garden, uh, it's in the front yard because my wife just hates that, and sometimes I like doing things my wife doesn't like, and uh, said nobody ever. And, and so my garden's usually in the front. I'm really good at growing it and really bad at harvesting it. So if you see, like, peppers hanging all off the thing, come grab them. Please, come grab them. But what I know about farming is that I planted in my grandma's house. She had a field, and my grandma let me do literally y'all whatever I wanted to do. And so my buddy and I decided it was a good idea to till my whole grandma's yard, just the whole daggone thing, my first garden ever. So we took a tiller, and we tilled the whole yard. To this day, you ride a lawnmower across my grandma's yard, and you boom, 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 boom. But here's what I did learn. Only a crazy farmer would go out into an untilled, unplowed field and take seeds and go and expect the crop to be bountiful. Why do I tell you this? Because for the church, if we're not tilling the soil too often, we preach a message. All right, here's Jesus, okay? Here's Jesus. You've come into the church. You're attending the church. Now, I just expect there to be a massive harvest. I expect there to be a massive, all of you to grow. But the idea is, no, when you farm, when you plant a field, you've got to till the thing first. It's got to be plowed first. Jesus is going to tell a parable in chapter 4 of this book that we're studying about the, the parable of the sower. It's what this church was named after. And the idea is like some of this soil is going to be good and some of this soil is not. Some of it's going to be hard packed. Some of it's going to have rocks. Some of it's going to have thorns. But if that soil is good, then it's going to multiply. And John's message is the idea that, okay, the Messiah is coming, but this field has got to be plowed. There are three steps in plowing a field. There's plowing, you're breaking the ground up. There's leveling, you're taking something, you're leveling out that field. And then you're manuring, you're adding things to the soil to make it more, uh, to make it more able to produce the crop you're trying to grow. And John's message is, listen, I got to till this field. I got to plow this thing. 
I want hearts to be ready that when Jesus comes and he is baptized, here he comes. I want them to receive him knowing I need him. I need him. This is the, the job of the church today. We have to allow the Holy Spirit to prepare that ground. And it is uncomfortable, y'all. Listen, I know, especially you go out, it's easy in the church, right? But when you go out into the community, it's hard. You want to just be like, hey, you, Jesus loves you. And he does. But the problem is, if you tell them, hey, Jesus loves you, but they don't understand, why should I care? It does nothing for them. The Holy Spirit has to till that ground and say, hey, you've got to be drawn to repentance. You've got to be drawn away from whatever it is you are going to now, your sin, your brokenness, the things that you try to entertain yourself with. You've got to turn away from those things to come to me. And this has not changed in the church today. So I want you to see this guy whose one job was to prepare the way for the Messiah. He knew this is the way to do it. He must call their hearts to repentance so that when the Messiah showed up, they knew this is the guy we need. He was speaking to a people who were entirely, for the most part, dependent on the law, who believed that their way to salvation, that they were covered because simply they were called the children of God, because they were the people of Israel. They had a free ticket to be reconciled with the Father. And John is saying, listen, before the Messiah even gets here, I need you to know that free ride is not a free ride. Yes, you're going to be freely offered salvation, but it will not come through your identity with Abraham alone. It will not come from you trying to meet the law because you are not righteous. You will be made righteous by your repentance, turning to Jesus Christ by his grace, his mercy, and faith in him alone. The ground was being prepared for the coming of the Messiah. And I believe the church needs to be reminded of this message again today. You see, these people, they received the message. Now, we know that the entirety of Israel did not enlarge because we see the problems that are going to unfold through this gospel. Many of the Jews did not believe. But listen to the response of the ones who did. The Bible says that John was baptizing in the river Jordan, verse number five. All the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan. And then read this next few words. What were they doing? Confessing their sins. Confessing their sins. Y'all, I believe with all my heart, every person you've ever met has a need for Jesus Christ. Amen. Whether they know it or not, they do. I would even argue that the person who says they don't and seems to be so secure and satisfied in where they are in life, if they were honest, would admit that they're unfulfilled, they're not whole, and there's something missing, that they are broken and lost. And the best news that has ever existed is Jesus Christ, the full gospel of Jesus Christ. And the gospel begins with, hey, you can turn to him. Confession and repentance is a wonderful gift. We talked about it before. What a gift that God says, listen, you have the ability to turn away from your brokenness and I will receive you. The Bible says John preached this message. He's preparing the way and all the people began to come into the water in droves as he was baptizing them and washing them in the Jordan River and they were confessing their sins to the Lord. Their hearts were being prepared for the gospel, for the Messiah. I believe, church, that we get to do this. We get to share in this today. 
that we get to draw people to confess, that their hearts can enjoy confession and be made new. I would encourage you on a practical level tonight, if you don't have someone that you meet with on a weekly basis and confess, look, I know we're not Roman Catholic, but one of the things they do value and they have right is confession. There is value in meeting with another person just as an accountability partner and saying, look, I, wanna, I want you to hold me accountable in confessing my sin to the Lord. Because when I confess, I can feel his mercy and his grace. I can feel his forgiveness and I can enjoy the life that he's offering me. I remember a time I was about 15 years old and um, I am not giving this as an example of something to do. I'm telling you about one of the worst mistakes I made in my life. I had this guy I worked with at the Waffle House. Worst job I ever worked, y'all. It was so bad. Day number one, to give you an idea how bad this job was, the trainer pointed to the egg iron behind me. She said, you see there's two egg irons? I said, yeah. She said, this one's for cooking eggs, and this one's for when someone comes in drunk and wanting to fight. You take this and throw it at them. I said, oh, this is how this job's going to be. But I met this guy, his name was Big Keith, and I, I think I've shared this story before, but Big Keith invited me to a party at his house one night after work. And I went to this party, and uh, I didn't know what I was doing, but I wanted to be cool. So I, I partook in this party. I wanted to enjoy everything that they were doing. And uh, so my mom calls. And if you've ever met Cindy, then you know the moment that my phone rang and it said, Mama, the fear of the Lord was deep within me. <laughs> I was terrified. I was shaken. Big Key said, what's wrong, little white boy? That's what he called me. He said, little white boy, are you okay? And I said, I don't know, Big Keith. And my mom's saying, you get your butt home right now. And I'm like, how does she know what I'm doing? And then I remember like, Mama talks to God. She said, you get your butt home right now. So she gets me home and y'all, I am terrified. Like I am just shaking. I'm going to the bathroom. She locks me in the bathroom as, as I'm sick on the stomach. She says, this is what you deserve. And it was the worst night of my life. And I remember waking up, I'm just terrified. Like, what is my mom going to do coming home from this party? I'm going to die tonight. And it's not going to be the party. It's going to be because Cindy Draper is going to tear me up. <laughs> Y'all met my mom. She's terrifying. <laughs> Wonderful lady. Kindness can be scary. <laughs> but can I tell you that when I woke up that morning, and I went and I sat at the table because I figured, you know what, let's get this over with. I'm not going to avoid her forever. I've run away a few times. It never works. She always finds me or I get hungry and come back. <laughs> and I'm sitting at the table and there's something to be said about sitting there and realizing, you know what, if I just tell her everything I did, I'm going to get my butt spanked because, you know, I grew up in North Carolina and they still did things right. You got, you got your butt whooped. We weren't about that gentle parenting stuff. Grandma said, go get a switch. And if you brought one back that wasn't big enough, you got a bigger switch. <laughs> and I knew that I was about to get torn up. But can I tell you that when I sat down with my mom, I said, Mom, I was so wrong. And I am so sorry. Y'all, it was the best feeling ever. Because there was just this truth, this reality in going to a parent who I knew that like she may be mad as fire and ready to ground me for the rest of eternity. Uh, honestly, I might be a pastor right now because I think I'd still be grounded if I wasn't. That's not true. 
But there's something about having a mom that loved me and I knew she was going to discipline me. But if when I confessed to her, something about confessing to a parent who loved me and wanted what was best for me and I knew would take care of me and would do everything she could to right what had gone wrong in my life at that point, something about that confession was incredibly healing and incredibly powerful. And I want you to know tonight, it is such a simple message, but I want you to know tonight, I believe, we talk in this church, it's a fairly new church, and I'm so thankful for all that God is doing and like the situation we get to be in, but sometimes, you know, we get a little too big for our britches and we start talking about, well, now I'm so glad that it's like this here and not like it is over there or there or there, and I'm like, you know what, like if you go 10, 20 years and you exist as a church and you don't live in repentance, you will have the same problems every other church has. Because God has given you a gift of repentance. And I just believe that like this message, look, the gospel, uh, repentance is not a piece of it. It's not like this, this dirty part that you get out of the way before the salvation comes. It is a piece, a parcel, a complete of the, uh, part of the whole of receiving Jesus Christ, that he's given you this gift to say, I'm going to turn away from my sin, and I'm going to enjoy the forgiveness that you are offering me, and I'm going to come to you in confession, and I want to tell you tonight, and I just want you to hear me super well, now, I have a wonderful mother who loves me great mom. Her love and forgiveness and mercy and kindness and generosity and desire to restore and desire to make me better and desire for me to grow is nothing compared to my heavenly father. He is so faithful and just and I believe that John the Baptist, as crazy as he sounded, like, I, and as, you know, at one point, John the Baptist, we know, is like talking to the Pharisees. He's like, you are a brood of vipers. You guys are wicked. You guys are awful. You guys are nasty. And as crazy and as harsh as he sounds, I believe that this crazy man in the wilderness knew if I can get God's people to come into this water and turn from their sin, what they are going to enjoy when the Messiah gets here is so powerful and so amazing and so life-giving, I don't want them to miss out on this. And it's the same message tonight. Jesus himself, we'll see, is going to come, and he's going to say, repent, for the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God is near. And he talks about this kingdom, and there's just this idea that you are literally, when you repent, are turning away from your sin, away from your brokenness, and what you are entering into is a kingdom that knows no end, a love that has no bounds, a forgiveness that is deeper than anything you have ever experienced, grace and mercy like you have never taken in before and what you are turning to away from to the Lord is the greatest thing you will ever experience in all of eternity that's the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and so I want to draw you what a, a simple message but I just want to draw you back to first John where we began tonight first John chapter 1 verse 9 listen to this again John said I'm coming to prepare the way for this Messiah and I'm going to prepare the way by preaching repentance. And the people came and they confessed their sins. And John writes in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, he said, If we confess our sin, y'all, this is for you and me tonight as well. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and he is just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. What a powerful message.
And so I just want to invite you with me. I want to join you just to an invitation as we take of the Lord's Supper to confess our sin to the Lord, to enjoy that gift that's called repentance, to say, Lord, man, I am so desperately in need of you. I've said this before, and I'll say it a thousand more times, Lord willing, before I die. I believe the church of Jesus Christ today, especially in the West, is in need of revival. And I do not think it comes from more programs or better speakers or holding revival events. Y'all, you can't plan revival. You can't say we're going to have revival next Friday at 5 o'clock. That doesn't make sense. God brings revival. And I believe that the way revival is going to happen is the church of Jesus Christ, especially in America, practicing repentance individually, collectively, and on a daily basis. That's the invitation. Heavenly Father, thank you, God, for this opportunity to come before you. Thank you for the opportunity to be together as a family. Thank you for the opportunity to enjoy the Lord's Supper together. And we come to you, God, seeking clean hands and a pure heart. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you that at the moment we confess our sins, we place our faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. In that moment, God, thank you that we go from death to life, that we go from old to new, that we go from dirty to clean, that we go from unrighteous to righteous, unholy to holy. Thank you that it's all by you. And Lord, we come to you now to celebrate once again what you have done for us. And God, we ask as we come to the table tonight, Lord, that if there's a a single person in the room or online who doesn't know with absolute certainty that you are their Lord and their Savior, that does not know with absolute certainty that they confess that Jesus Christ lived without sin, died on the cross, fully God and fully man for our sin, confessing that he did not remain in that grave, but that he rose on the third day and ascended to the right hand of the Father and is coming back again for his people. Lord, if there's anyone that does not know that truth deep within their hearts, I pray, Lord, that you would draw them to repentance and that they would accept you as Lord and Savior. By your Holy Spirit, work in their heart, convict them, and draw them to the need that they have for you and give them assurance that that need is fully met in Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, that in that moment, if anyone even prays that even now together with us, that they are filled with your Holy Spirit and that you will edify them and grow them and equip them for service, that you will sanctify them and make them new and empower them for the life that you have called them to in Jesus' name. We come to you, Lord, as a church family, as we prepare to come to this table. We come to this table in repentance. We come to this table confessing our sin. And so, Lord, we just take a few moments of silence together to confess our sin to you. person in the room that no matter how many things they just laid out before you, they feel like it's too big or too dark or too broken. 
for you to forgive. And we pray, God, as we meet together that you would give them a peace given by your Holy Spirit to know that you truly have cast their sin as far as the east is from the west. That nothing they have done, no sin, no hurt they've caused, nothing they've done is too deep, too dark, or too broken to be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Help them, Lord. Help that person specifically tonight. I just feel led to pray for them, Lord. I ask that you would help them to know that holding on to their sin and allowing that weight to, to carry them and bog them down, it's not insulting you, it's insulting them, it's insulting you. It's saying, Jesus, your death was not enough. And we believe tonight, Lord, that your death is enough, that your blood is sufficient to cover even the darkest of sins. Thank you for your forgiveness. Amen.